Welcome back to the AC Hive, where we're talking about innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. I'm Ralph Montague, director at ArcDocs and co-founder of the AC Hive. I'm joined by John Egan, my fellow co-founder of AC Hive. John, do you want to introduce yourself quickly? Hi, everyone. This is John Egan. I'm CEO of BIM Launcher and co-founder at AC Hive. I'm really looking forward to another discussion today with Kat and Ralph. So we're really excited today to be joined by Kat Dovjenko. Kat is the Design Program Manager at Google, R&D for Built Environment. What a cool position and a cool company to work for. I think everybody's <laughs> going to be very excited to, to hear what you have to say, Kat. So if you want to do, quickly introduce yourself and just give everybody a little bit of background, how you got to the position you're in and, and what you're doing at the moment. Wonderful. Well, thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure and excited to, to chat my name is Kat Devjenko. I'm trained as an architect, and I currently consult for a small research lab at Google. Three years ago, I kind of pivoted from a pure architecture route to something a little bit more different um, on managing innovative research initiatives. And in my spare time, I work uh, alongside three billion brilliant uh, co-investors in a AEC syndicate. And I'm also part of Architectes, um, a group of intrepid bands of architects now working in the tech industry. So my background into innovation and into technology has been quite interesting. I started my background, I started my journey really as a finance grad in Vancouver, Canada. And I was able to work with a really great group of architects and real estate developers on developing a building on my campus as a sort of a client uh, for my student union. And then from there, I was hooked. So I did a bit of real estate development right after my graduation. I then ended up going into architecture school, did the very pure track of architecture and somehow found my way in San Francisco. And as the saying goes, I was in Silicon Valley, and so I ended up uh, really taking advantage of that siren song of tech and going into Google, and it's been pretty great ever since. It's amazing how many architects end up in sort of R&D and innovation roles. Would you say your training in architecture and design thinking has led you to this great position you're in? It has. I think it does. And it has helped me. And it's it's great that you should mention that. Um, I think the biggest thing is architects are inevitably inherently trained to think transformationally. That was a lot of leaves. But basically, the idea is that we tend to think, at least in our schooling, and our education, on a way to to do transformational change rather than marginal change. And I think when it comes to innovation, you have to think about the moonshots. You have to think about transformational change. So that's really how I got into this. I think when it comes to design thinking and sort of the crux of design thinking, I didn't know about what design thinking was until I graduated architecture school. And I realized quite quite quickly that I've been doing design thinking all along. And that design thinking for at least for architects is really just keeping the user in mind and, and making sure that it's user centric and making sure the user's needs are met. Yeah, it's interesting because when we, John and I started AAC Hive, I mean, one of our, the founding reasons for starting it was we felt innovation in general was quite low in, in the sector, but that's, that's not absolutely true. Like, I mean, every building project is a, is a challenge in itself, and you know, a lot of innovation is happening in architecture and engineering, but it's happening at the project level, and, and it seldom dis- disseminates throughout the industry because teams are formed and then broken up, and you know, right. the, les- the lessons learned are not sort of carried forward or carried forward in a very low-scale way. And we find that a lot of companies don't engage in formal R&D, in, in the mm-hmm. AEC sector. So the R&D investment is pretty low at a company level. So it's fantastic that a company like Google is obviously investing and put, uh, creating a whole department that's looking at R&D in, in the built environment. What, what, what's driving that? Well, I think, um, I mean, our, our lab exists for Google's real estate group, and we see ourselves as harnessing Google's scale to be able to drive innovation forward. So um, but it's not just purely altruistic. Google is one of the largest real estate developers in the world. It builds a tremendous amount of things. And if you've, you've been following the news, it's it's 
going to be building more. So it's a little bit in its best interest to think about better ways of building, both in all aspects. So right from the beginning of design to the end of kind of operations and maintenance. And it has been thinking, at least in our lab, we've been multi-scaled. So we've been looking at everything from software and furniture to large urban solutions. What's the general feeling amongst all the technically advanced people at Google about the AEC sector? Like, Do they find it fascinating and frustrating and you know it's very interesting right now so there's of course there's people at google and i'm also part of architects and i'm also part of a community called on deck which is sort of a community of founders and one of the things that i found over the past year or so really has been this uptick of interest in the built world now there's this huge blending of the digital and the built world and you can see that with things like nest and iot but I think that it's more than that. Um, and there's just been this really big interest with the built world from techies. And I mm. think that's incredibly exciting. Why is that suddenly? Because, I mean, the built world's been around forever. And you know, what's the sudden interest in? I So I don't know. I have a few hypotheses. I think the biggest one is that there's been a tremendous amount of work in the in the bit world, so compared to the app atom world. And I feel like a lot of techies have uh, picked the kind of the low hanging fruit of the built of the atom world rather. So the low hanging fruit of e-commerce, social media, and there's just, there's 12 trillion, there's $13 trillion worth of value to be unlocked in the built environment. And I think that's just a, such a large number for techies not to notice. Absolutely. A lot of our listeners are you know, people who obviously have an interest in innovation and an interest in, in improving things, maybe not working directly in R&D departments and everything, but how would you sort of say innovation happens? Because obviously you, you're in a formal yeah. environment that is doing innovation. Like that's your job. You know, does innovation just sort of come as a you know, spark of brilliance or is it, you know, is, it a, is it something that's organized and deliberate and – how does innovation happen for you for you at Google? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like that's uh, multiple PhDs in the making. I'm sure there's uh, there's folks that are far more um, experts in in the science of innovation, but I can speak to my experience for sure. And one of the things maybe we want to chat about first is the fact that innovation is inherently actually quite disturbing, and that many people while they may boast of wanting innovation, um, it's actually a very hard thing to do and it's a very hard thing to accept. So those are the first, the first caveat that I have. And the way that we work at the lab really tries to foster innovation. I, I believe you can't have innovation without a diversity of disciplines and a diversity of thought and a diversity of background. I think that is really the crux of it. And when I read sort of the things that are online on big innovative companies and big innovative initiatives, for example, Google X, that is the same thinking that they have, that you cannot have innovation without a, a large group of people that are very diverse. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we are fluent in the litany of, of constantly growing digital tools and methodologies. So we have a diversity of backgrounds. We're not just architects. And then we are also coming in and having a litany of new technologies and tools and ways of thinking that we're starting to kind of sprinkle in. And then we hack, we iterate, and we prototype and test what we call minimum viable um, products for space. So that iterative process is really meant to generate a bit more innovation. So those are the three methodologies that we use in our lab. We're very heavy on prototyping. We're very heavy on mock-up. And we have a full shop, which allows us to do mock-ups outside of the project cycle, which is something that we find very useful. So that's how we do it. There's probably other things in the world in terms of how innovation is done, but at least from my personal experience, that's how I, how, how I see it. When you say you have a shop, what is it? What are you doing in your shop? Is it... Well, you can think of it as a little bit like a Willy Wonka for architects and builders. Um, I, it's really about 
building mock-ups and prototypes early on. And that's actually how many software developers and that's how, how software and hardware is built to a certain degree. And to a certain degree, that's how architecture should be built. However, you can't really iterate on one building. You can iterate on part, parts of the building. Um, and that's really a, a difficulty. You perhaps in the future, when we have very sophisticated uh, simulation software, we could essentially iterate on top of a building digitally. But it is the, the fact of the matter, it's very expensive and it's very hard to build one building, let alone multiple ones. There is a benefit when you are looking at a portfolio. So this is kind of the benefit of um, at least Google and Sidewalk Labs and any developer that does multiple buildings in the course of many years is that you can take learnings across different buildings. Whether that happens or not is, you know, up for debate. Are there any uh, projects that you can talk talk about that have sort of gone through the early stage and become you know, something commercial or something real? I mean, you, you mentioned the sky, sidewalk labs. Um, you know. Yeah, there's a few things that are public that I can speak to. The first is Google's partnership with Factory OS um, to be creating some modular housing solutions in the Bay Area. That's very exciting. And the second one is sort of, um, and this will come and trickle through as the building is ending completion. And that is really some of the advances and the innovations that are in the Charleston East building. Now, we're hoping to unlock those advances and those innovations beyond just that one building. But there are a few things in that building, everything from the structural system to how it is dealing with sustainability that are vastly innovative. And I'm not an expert. I'm not the project um, kind of lead on that particular building. But there's a number of things online and public that uh, you can take a look at. I'm very excited to have that building online when it does come. Uh, and it'll be a very interesting thing to see. John, you said to me before that you've always wanted to work at a company like Google. <laughs> what questions do you have about, you know, what's, what's it like to work in, in such an innovative company and discipline? Mm. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, I've had my startups for the last seven years and I always said, you know, if anyone asked me, you know, hey, John, what would it take for you to leave? And I was like, well, a big exit, like from my startups or, you know, a company like Google came along and put me in a in a prominent position where I could, you know, let my uh, innovation juices run, if you like. So I think that it's quite interesting that, you know, what, what you've spoken about, you know, like the kind of vibes that I'm getting is, and maybe you can correct me, is that the innovation process is quite rigid. Like, you know, this short, this seems to be, you know, very short focused, I suppose, injections of people's times into certain things. Uh, whether, you know, innovation projects. And if they don't work, you throw them away, you start in the next one. For me, we have a product in BIM Launcher that, you know, I bought the domain in 2000, or sorry, I set up the Twitter account in 2016 for this idea. Mm. And I bought the domain in 2016. I, and I let it lapse. And, you know, it was a very much a seedling idea at mm -hmm. that stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in 2020, the end of 2020, it's coming back to light. You know, I've rebought the domain. The Twitter account now looks like it will have some use, uh, you know, some better use than it has for the last five years. But it has all been driven by this long term vision. And I mean, I've got, you know, knocked through through my journey over the last four or five years. But I've always kind of had a north star if you if, mm -hmm. if if that makes sense. And I'm wondering to what extent would someone with a personality where they have a strongly guided north star, how do you think that would you know, how how like would that be a diverse enough perspective to work in the teams that you've just uh you know, you've just spoke to or yeah, I mean, would I 
would I be essentially sidelined and told <laughs> to go and start another startup? <laughs> John, if, if I had the power to hire you, I would, of course, hire you. Um, <laughs> I think I think so. You're talking about something really interesting is um, do you have a rigid framework or do you have something that's a little bit more flexible and open? And this actually comes into a little bit more of. How do you think about the future? So when I hear your question, I really think about like, well, what does the future hold and how do you even begin to think about the future? How do you even start to create these North Stars and, and should these North Stars be rigid and set or should they be flexible? And the reality for at least us is that they are quite flexible. No one knew what COVID would bring. No one had any idea that there would be a pandemic. And even though we do a lot of future exercise, so for example, we did a lot of work on understanding what the future of workplace is. Naturally, every large company that has workplaces should probably undergo some sort of exercise to look at the future of workplace. But we really worked and we really looked at design fiction and we looked at things like um, methodologies to look at a speculative future. When we did that, None of us could have predicted something like a pandemic. And of course, that has shifted Google's response to workplace, and that's shifted its response to how it deals with the workforce. And I think for me to bring it all back home is, you know, the way we work is quite flexible. So there's a rigid framework. There's a rigid, rigid principle. And those principles are actually pretty much aligned with Google's principles, kind of the user knows and, and all, let, 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 there's, uh, follow what the user needs and all else will follow or some sort of kind of version of that. And then we have a little bit of a rigid framework of how we work internally, how our teams are formed and how we present to leadership and how we present information. But other than that, it's quite flexible. And we did have to go through an exercise. And I imagine everyone did when they looked at changing their North Star. So that answer is kind of a bit, little bit of both. I suppose that working environments and brings me on to a question just about the AEC sector mm-hmm. and maybe the perception of the AEC sector for most, for a lot of people. Like we had this discussion with a previous speaker, you know, if your, if your child came to you know, at school age and said, yeah, I want to go into the construction sector, uh, most parents would probably try everything in their means to turn them away or <laughs> distract them because there's a there's a general perception that the sector is sort of antiquated, dirty, maybe even corrupt. There's definitely a, a perception that it's you know for men only, maybe tough men who who can lift heavy things. What would you say to that sort of perception and, and how how would you encourage people to of who don't sort of fit into that model? Of that, of that perception to, mm-hmm. to enter this industry and, and view this industry? Well, I think that's a, a great question, wonderful question. And it's definitely something that I think about a lot and have experienced in some shape or form. I actually want to push back and, and think about that a little bit. So when I grew up, um, I grew up in a, in a rough neighborhood. And one of the biggest things that a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my friends ended up going into is construction and trade construction. And the fact that trade construction was so lucrative for folks that maybe didn't want to go to college, maybe didn't want to do more, uh, more kind of traditional training and traditional education. And so I don't know, for, for my experience, I, I don't think if I, if I had a child, for example, I wouldn't try to hear him or her away from a a world of construction. So I think my perception is perhaps clouded by the fact of my background and also where I'm at, and maybe perhaps also by my youth and optimism in this field. So that's a a bit of a caveat. Um, But I, I honestly, so when I do talk to techies and I do talk to folks in this world, so folks that are in, folks that work in general contractors, folks that have startups, folks that are in robotics, for example, or in design tools, um, I do find that perhaps that perception is slowly breaking. And the reality is it has to, and it has to in really interesting ways. The reality is that we're kind of faced with a climate crisis and we're faced with a tremendous amount of problems that are infrastructural. And we need construction to step up and to to deal with that. And so I actually see 
at least my anecdotal non-scientific sort of point of view, is I actually see that that is shifting. I personally never had that perspective of the industry being tremendously male forward. Yes, that's true to a certain degree, especially when you get down to the folks that are actually building the building. But I've never thought of those folks as, you know, lesser or different. I think actually it's, it's very hard to be on the ground, to be someone that is a carpenter or an electrician. And my experience with those people on a day to day basis has been nothing but, but positive. And it's been absolutely amazing. Those are some of the smartest people. If you know how to lay out something correctly, those are, those, those are actually very hard things to do, especially if it's like raining outside or it's cold. Whatever. Um, so my my perspective has always been that this is shifting and it's shifting for the better. And you see that with people that are starting to start startups or starting real estate development firms or starting general contract firms or the new people that are starting to gain uh, positions of authority in GCs. So I actually think that that is not true to a certain degree. Um but of course, there's probably a few a few bad apples as well. I'd agree. I don't think it's true either. I think it's more of a, perce- a perception. I mean, mm-hmm. my, own, my own view is it's it's an incredible industry. Like we're literally making the world. You know, if you had a choice between making a new sort of computer game or a new website or you know making something that other people will live in, learn in, be treated in, you know, it's. Mm-hmm. It's it's an incredible industry, um, mm-hmm. but but it does have, have its challenges, and I think we all we all know that. <laughs> right, uh, right. So, so there's, a, there's a lot of things to be to be solved and to be improved, and yeah, and I think that that solving those problems and improving those problems will need, as you said earlier, going back to your point, is you need a, a much more diverse group of thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these these challenges won't be solved by one particular group. You know, with one type of thinking, it, it just needs people who are scientists in materials, scientists in technology, scientists in in all sorts of uh, areas to to bring their input. Right, right. Something that's just come to my mind is that earlier on in your introduction, you mentioned that you worked with a group of investors. I was right in, in hearing that you you quickly ran on to the next point, uh, but I was really interested to know. What are the differences that you see between like big organizational in- innovation and innovation that goes on in, in startup organizations? And maybe you could tell us a bit more about your role there and, and how you, you know, you bring value to the startups. And if you could just tell us a bit more about your VC side of things, it'd be really interesting for us. Um, this is very new. It is very small. We're, we've, we haven't done as many deals as we'd like to, and it's just started this year. But I do work with three other brilliant investors, and they all come from a background in architecture. Some of them are in startups. Some of them are in lar- later stage startups. And some of them are in big companies like myself. And one of the really interesting things that we found was that on one hand, investors in tech don't really understand the building construction world. So either that leads them to invest in companies that perhaps are not actually that great, or it leads them to invest in uh, not to invest at all in construction or in the AAC world. We're seeing a shift of that, and that's kind of why we started this VC firm, was on one hand to provide some value and see that there are a number of really great startups out there that are just not getting enough of, uh, of an investment because they're in this kind of, not very niche, but a, a bit of a different industry. It's not e-commerce, and it's not social media, it's not fintech, uh, it's not you know crypto or Bitcoin, sort of the 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 ones that are very popular right now in the VC world. So we started this AC syndicate run through AngelList to really start to create more of a shift um, into investment into AC startups. 
And over the past few months, it's been really great, both working with my team, but also seeing that there are a few VCs that are starting to sprout up and uh, put in some money. So typically we we do kind of small allocations alongside a larger venture capital firm. So it's been really great to see that there are larger venture capital firms that are interested in construction and interested in the AC world. Um, so that's kind of a bit of what, uh, why we started this. And one of the benefits we have is, of course, we have this huge network of architects, a lot of architects that are first, um, you know, we brought in onto the platform that are LPs. So all of a sudden you have architects investing in their own, which is a really great concept. And we hope to further that concept and hope to further that relationship. And one thing that we found was when we bring architects or builders or people with experience onto the platform, they're inevitably a great source of advice, a great source of a strategic investor. So that's really the benefit. If you're a startup, you have uh, you have to you know allocate a small location to our fund, but basically you're you're essentially getting access to a, a wide range of really awesome LPs that know a thing or two about construction. That's a benefit from the startup side, and the difference between big companies versus startups that's really interesting. And like we can tie that back to innovation and whether innovation can even happen in a big company and how. How does innovation have to happen in a big company versus how it happens in a startup? I actually have a lot of faith in startups and I have a lot of faith in big companies. And I think startups are really great as innovation vehicles because they're hungry and because they have to create something very quickly um, or their money runs out. So inevitably, startups are really amazing at that end. There are also incredibly agile and uh, quite often very smart people like incredibly uh, I've been working I've worked with some of the smartest founders I've known it's just it's kind of amazing to think about that um and but there's also in in construction you almost want you almost want something that's beyond the VC model. You almost want a PE model. You want something where there's large influxes of capital because construction itself now that doesn't just like just digital tools, um, they can probably be built with a little bit less capital, but construction, robotics, like the physical moving of atoms is incredibly expensive. And there are ways to not have that as, as expensive, but it is still very uh, capital intensive. So that's where perhaps the big companies come in and where you can have innovation, you have a little bit of a bigger budget. Um, so there's benefit in both models. And there's certainly a need on top of that, perhaps, not just, you know, our model of capitalism. And I think there, and, and on top of that, you do need some sort of injection and some sort of funding from the government in some sort of way. So I think those are those that that does come into play at uh, some level. Yeah, I want to come back to the innovation or mm -hmm. sorry, not the innovation, but the VC model. Yep. That you've got, so that's quite innovative, right? That's AngelList is a is a an internet platform. I mean, could you talk to us a little bit about AngelList and how? I mean, what? Well, for example, why didn't you choose to go through the the traditional VC route, which was raise a fund and you know bring on advisor or you know partners to the firm and you know go a very rigid not uh, well i don't know whether that word would have would fit but uh, let's go right. with it compared to an angelist syndicate i mean you're building on top of a platform there did the platform and the opportunity on the platform drive your interest and say you know was it something that you had seen done for other industries and other sectors or were mm -hmm. you frustrated with perhaps was was a VC, becoming a VC was always something you wanted to do and you knew that the traditional <laughs> VC model wasn't going to work for you. Or could you talk to us a little bit about that? Right. Yes. I, 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 so I, I don't think becoming a traditional VC was everything I wanted to do. In fact, I, I don't, don't see that as my path at all. The thing about Angelus, which I'm not an expert in Angelus. I don't know what their roadmap looks like, but I do love the fact that they're trying a bunch of different things to disrupt industries. And 
one of those things is this syndicate um, kind of platform where you can take a bunch of people with small checks and allow them to go into an investment. And Angelist handles the legal, it handles um, kind of the coordination. It's very easy to start. It's very easy to maintain. They do a lot of really great work there. And I um, am always impressed with, with the team that runs it. I'm always impressed with the level of service. It's a great platform. Now, what that allows us to do other compared to a traditional VC is that all of a sudden you have a number of LPs that you can bring on. Um, so you can bring on partners and those partners can be folks that are perhaps not um, that haven't had that access in the past. So through a traditional model, you don't get the level of, of at least on our end, the breadth of experience and this kind of LP base that's really fantastic. So all of a sudden you have, for example, architectural partners or builders coming in onto the platform and being able to write small checks pretty simply um, to us. So we do try to keep those checks size, uh, check size minimums very small. So it's affordable for people to invest in startups. And so that's really the point it was never the point of starting a VC um, to, to make a copious amount of money or things like that. It was really to link people that wanted to invest that were in the built environment and startups that needed money to start their amazing solutions in the built environment as well. And we found that the easiest way to do that was through Angelus. We looked at other ways. We looked at um, perhaps creating SPVs on our own end, uh, but we just found that this was just a lot simpler. I mean, it's really... Have you found that some of the LPs are getting involved in the project as well? You know, so not putting some investment in, but also participating? So they right now, I mean, right now it's still still early and still new, but we do see that there's a tremendous wealth of knowledge from the LPs. There's a tremendous wealth of excitement. So it's kind of beyond just their small checks. It's really about establishing a link between the LPs and the startups. So the startup um, can go ahead and, and turn to us and say, hey, well, I have a question. Uh, does anybody know anyone in this field or, or do you have a contact? And so it's really meant to be a resource for a startup. And hopefully it does end up being a pretty amazing resource as well. So... I want to know, Kat, you've spoken to us about the value that you bring. Um, so I think that much is clear. I think that, you know, AngelList as a delivery platform, AngelList Syndicate as a delivery platform, it sounds incredible. I mean, it sounds really innovative. I Like, to my mind, I think that there could be potentially 100 different AEC syndicates on this AngelList, all investing and all looking to build bridges with potential startups. Could you talk to us a bit about how it changes the process between the matchmaking of the startup with the syndicate? Is it still a case where we, you know, a startup will contact you via email, do the introduction, here's the pitch deck, or is it the startup now is building a profile on the syndicate platform and they're essentially fishing for investment from a wider pool of investors or can you talk to, yeah, what does that yeah, process, the, how has that process changed? Totally. Um, so the way that we work is that we have contacts within the startup world. So I get emails from interested startups that are looking to raise quite often. Um, they've already rate, they've already kind of um, we're able to obtain financing from a larger VC and, and have some allocation left over that they'd love for us to raise for them. And they really see the benefit of having either, they see the benefit of, you know, bringing in architects um, and sharing their, you know, their, their future wealth with a group of architects, or they see the benefit from a strategic point of view where either those folks are going to be potential future clients or advisors, things like that. So they have, it's less about them fishing between different syndicates I haven't really seen that. It's more kind of pretty traditional, really get an email from a network, have a network of 
folks that are starting really interesting things and we get an email, we kind of go through a due diligence process, um, a pretty robust one at that. Uh, and one of one of my big joys is actually to do that due diligence, to learn about that startup, to learn about those industries or smaller industries within the construction world. And then and then we go through the, the process where we essentially put it online and, and we raise through our LP network. So it's pretty straightforward. Um, and they do have a profile on Angelus. Angelus does a bunch of other things alongside this um, syndicate process. It does. Um, it allows people to hire on its platform and so on. So there's a bunch of other things. That I'm not an expert in uh, Angelus, but it's uh, it's pretty straightforward. I feel like it. I feel like, you know, almost anyone could do it. If I can do it, most people can really do it. I think the biggest thing really is that there is a benefit for startups to actually do this. So um, whether that benefit is through the, the folks that run the syndicate or the LP network, uh, we can provide some level of advice and help and other contacts. Perhaps they're not fully done their raise. They need other larger VCs to come in and we can kind of broker that. There is actually quite, there's not quite a bit, but I'm starting to see some syndicates do a lot more raises for startups in the AAC world. So syndicates that perhaps have done work on prop tech or real estate are starting to shift towards that. It's just that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. There's a, a big pie out there and, and everyone kind of wants a little bit of it. So uh, it's a bit of like the Wild West when it comes to, to getting deals, uh, but it's very exciting. And can you talk to us about any startups that you're involved with that you're excited with that's going to change the future of construction or uh, yeah <laughs> I don't well, mean to put you on the spot but so like, I can I can speak to um one that uh has kind of publicly um raised and as as publicly said that we're part of it and that was Hypar and we're super excited for Hypar and I think Hypar is absolutely game-changing I have so much faith in the founder team they I think they're some of the most brilliant people I've ever met. And uh, they also have quite a large Discord community of sort of architect slash developers. So I'm very excited for Hypar. So that's one that I'm really excited. Um, I think I'm actually quite interested. Uh, so there's there's the tool world. There's the folks in the tool world. What I think is way more interesting, and these are, these are not startups that uh, my syndicate is uh, Funding. These are just kind of opinions of general where I think things are going. One thing that I'm really excited about is not so much on generative design, because I think that's like, you know, probably a, a, a very loaded term at this point. But I'm actually quite interested in software that helps with really boring things like MEP layouts. So um, I think there's some work that was done. Um, Social Construct currently came out of uh, stealth mode. And they have been doing a tremendous work on trying to figure out how to best lay out MEP, sort of the boring stuff in a building. And I think yeah. when I think about the, the cost of a building, at least from, from my experience, MEP has been one of the highest costs and it's one of the highest growing costs in a building. So buildings are getting, at least in, in commercial and workplace buildings, are getting more and more complex with all the HVAC, the smart building, electrical, plumbing system. There's a bunch of stuff that is not glamorous that can be automated, that can be improved and optimized. And those are the things that I think will really set the stage. So those are really exciting. And then the last thing that I think is really exciting, and to a certain degree, there's so many of these companies that have come out, but the uh, accessory dwelling units, the ADU companies, I think a lot of the ADU companies are really interesting and they're interesting not because of the actual product, but they're interesting because they're small. And one of the cool things that I, at least if I was running these companies, one of the things that I would really try to do is, you know, an ADU company doesn't have to build the same way as a building. So because you're small, you can do prototyping and testing quite like quicker. And so you can almost use an ADU company as a test test build for larger things. So I think that's quite exciting. One of the earlier points you made was 
that innovation is quite difficult and it's you know you're coming sort of headfirst against the status quo and uh and challenging and disrupting and even if something doesn't work it probably works for somebody you know somebody's right. making some money out of the wasteful uh, inefficient way things are working and you and you're challenging it and and We've probably seen with a few projects, and I mean, sidewalk labs came to mind with with uh, the project in in Canada that um, you know, was challenged, <laughs> let's say, mm-hmm. from almost every front. Even the whole community came against it. And big companies like Katero, who, who, who attempted to industrialize the construction process, well, and are still attempting. It's not that they they right. have failed, but they let's say they have they have probably haven't um, had the success. They anticipated, right. um, you know, is that sort of interface between advancing things and coming against the status quo and disruption and uh, in obviously the ruffling of feathers that, that happens when you do that. How are you and your team thinking about dealing with that? I mean, we're very lucky in a sense that the company that we all work, um, we consult for, we that company in, inherently is innovative and prizes innovation over over things. So that's something that is very lucky and very good. Um, now, when we think about it a little bit broader, so the question is really about how do you advance innovation and question status quo in a large sort of general manner? Is that is that really what you're asking? Well, it's, particularly I'm thinking of startups and yeah. When you're a small player in a market and you, you're coming up with innovative ideas, it's very easy for big players, the incumbents who have business models that are reaping benefits from wasteful and inefficient processes to wipe you out, basically, or to stop you in your tracks. <laughs> right. Um, and, yeah, and how do you navigate around that, that scenario? That's, that's the all. question, right? That's the question. I think, you know, I think... One thing to think about, perhaps, is the fact that when startups, many startups start very small and have a very narrow set of things they solve for. So um, they solve for a particular problem and then they expand. And so I think when you solve for uh, inherently when you have a startup that's solving for a narrow well-researched problem, a good startup will, you know, have a talk to their users. They will research what the problem is. They will find a product market fit. Those folks are going to be addressing core needs. And I think there's so many core needs in the construction industry that need to be done. There's so much that can be done even today with the technology we have. So not even sort of the fancy robotics technology. There's stuff that we have today that we can directly improve with a bunch of technology we've had for maybe 10 years already. Um, and so when you start small, at least in the startup model and start very focused, you can start to make quite a bit of change. And over time, that will significantly move the move the needle. At least I believe so. So one of the ways in which you could start to seed innovation is through that. And I, I, I truly think that that's probably one of the better ways. But at the same time, so that's kind of a small, you know, niche play. Um, at the same time, you have the Kateras of the world that are funded through SoftBank and have a tremendous amount of money and need to, you know, they're vertically integrated. They're, they're huge changes in the industry and there's benefit to that as well. So there's, there's a way of growing slowly and over time. And then there's a way of growing quickly and there are benefits and there's opportunities in construction for both. I personally think that with the scale of problems we're coming into, that we probably want more and more larger plays like Katera to start to shift the industry. And we probably even want, you know, government or something else to promote that. So there is probably a need for larger shifts. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that there needs to be funding um, 
for those companies to be able to scale that quickly or to be able to address those problems. That's going to be a challenge. And for a company like Google, you know, it's interesting you said earlier that they were looking at modular construction in the housing market. Like you wouldn't sort of associate a technology company with being having an interest in the housing market. But of course, the challenge for them there is that they have these large facilities and staff and obviously feel that the, the AEC sector is not able to, to deliver the housing needs of, of all those stuff. I assume that's the, the reason that a company like Google is looking at that sector. I think you can think about it as just just as a not just Google, just as a, a client. If there's an option that allows you to build how, like a incredibly high quality, great housing at a lower cost and a lower time, th- then the option is is obvious. So I mm. think it was less about hey, let's let's really help this modular company. It was more about this is a this is a solution that's solving my problems. And so I think that's really quite beneficial. And we're getting we're starting to get to a point with prefab or other solutions in construction where the it's less about kind of an altruistic. I want to help or I want to really be helping um, a, a fledgling startup and more about, well, this this is actually directly addressing my problem. And it's not housing for staff. And uh, not so much. Okay. It's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's actually larger than that. It's really contributing to the Bay Area. There's a, a, a huge need for housing in the Bay Area um, in, for a factor of reasons. But I think it's really about um, addressing that big need and addressing financial needs that Google has. I think for years, many people have been saying, you know, just wait until the Microsofts and Googles and Amazons of this world come and come into this AEC sector, you know, and sort out the problem. <laughs> and, and we've been waiting for, for many years. Is, do you think that's beginning to happen, that the technology companies are now? Yeah, um, I think the reality is the one of the really interesting things that's happened is, I, I mean, Amazon and Google, their their main bread and butter isn't, you know, building housing or building things to a certain degree, it is building servers, it is building warehouses, but it's not how they make their money. Um, Google and search and ads and, and a bunch of other things. And I think there's definitely benefit of the large players being interested. Um, but one of the things I found really interesting was the fact that you had this rise of WeWork and um, you know, there's a bunch of things that didn't go uh, to plan for rework, and there's a bunch of problems that happened. But one of the greatest things that's happened with rework is it spawned a generation of architects and thinkers and builders to think about space as a product and to think about architecture as a product. And uh, rework was was directly in the building uh, was in the business of of space, right? Whereas Google and Amazon are kind of tangentially in the business of space. WeWork is directly in the business of space. And so it was incredibly important for, for it to be able to innovate on its space. And it did to a certain degree. So I think you're right that, yes, there's a lot of interest, but it's really interest on the client side. Um, I think there's going to be a number of unicorns that it will happen um, on the AAC side. It's just a matter of time. I'm hoping that there are more Kateras that come out of this game. Um, and so that's, that's really sort of my answer to that. And of course, behind the physical environment, there's, there's a lot of data, like all the information about the systems and the products that make up the built environment. Yeah. So you would imagine the technology companies would have an interest in that side of the built environment, you know, the data behind the built environment, the, the data that makes it happen and makes it work, if you like. Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, the, I think one of the things is when you're someone like WeWork, for example, you care a lot about the occupancy data, right? Um, because that is essentially your, who, who uses your building and how and where and when. Um, when you're someone like Google or Amazon, it's still important, um, but it's not your product isn't space. So it's a bit of a different piece. So I think when we think about data and we think about, 
building and, and data that's tied directly to buildings. I'm, I I want to be, I want to be, I, I almost, I want to be kind of apprehensive and, and thoughtful about the fact that if there's no use for that data, then perhaps it's not that use. Like it, there, if there has to be an, inevitably a use for that data for a company, for it to have some benefit. Um, and unfortunately for many companies, that means selling that data <laughs> rather than actually using it. But I think when it comes to kind of building and data and smart buildings, and at least in that world, um, uh, there has to be a really valid use case for, for the infrastructure and, and that data. There's also a real um, concern that I think is shared by many is, is privacy and the fact that if you know who is in your building and how they're interacting with the building, there are inevitable privacy concerns. So the benefit mm-hmm. of using benefit of using that data has to be larger than than these privacy concerns. Um, and in fact, that's a that's a huge part of data that we perhaps don't speak enough of. Yeah. Anyway, we've we've come to the hour, and uh, <clears throat> John. Uh, do you have any last questions or? No, I'm more questioned out. Thanks, Ralph. And <laughs> <laughs> just uh, like to thank Kat for her time. It was really insightful. I really enjoyed her insights into innovation and also really getting to know about this new VC landscape that seems to be emerging. So, yeah, thanks, Kat. And I look forward to uh, maybe bump into you one day and Google corridors. Wonderful. <laughs> if dreams come true, of course. <laughs> well, it's and been from a yourself, Kat, do you have uh, any last words of inspiration for the audience? I think, you know, 12, 13 trillion dollars is enough for people to take notice. And I think we're going to see some fantastic things in the future. I am incredibly optimistic. And I, I think we have to do it. There's so many problems in the world when it comes to climate change, when it comes to inequality, that we need to think in an infrastructural level. So that's all I have to say is yeah. we have to think, think, we have to think atoms and bits, but we do have to think about those atoms. Mm, absolutely. Well, I'm sure we're going to have more conversations because I think there's still a lot to explore. And uh, so thank you very much. And uh, I would even encourage you, we've, we've set up a new platform, the AC Hive platform, where the community can have some online discussions. So if you have anything that you'd like to post there to, to get some conversation going, I'd encourage you to do that. And I hope you have a fantastic break. And I'm sure 2021 is going to be an excellent year for everyone. Uh, Wonderful. In the, in, in the AEC space, and, and we wish you all the best. Thank, Thank you. you.